0: Take your business further at tmobilecom slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of Outlaw Country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Pushkin. Just a quick note here. You can listen to all of the music mentioned in this episode on our playlist, which you can find a link to in the show notes. For licensing reasons, each time a song is referenced in this episode, you'll hear this sound effect. All right. Enjoy the episode. It's been 10 years since Arcade Fire's exceptional third album, The Suburbs, earned a Grammy for Album of the Year. It's a distinction that helped catapult the quirky indie rock band from Montreal into one of the biggest bands in the world. That's ready to start from the suburbs. With a string of chart-topping conceptual albums and a live show that's arguably unmatched by any other modern rock band, Arcade Fire's genius can be attributed to their tireless work ethic, a collective musical mastery, and lead singer Win Butler's total surrender to an elusive musical spirit. Wynn Butler spoke with Rick Rubin from his home studio in New Orleans, where he lives with his wife and band member, Regine Chasson. Wynn describes the night he and Regine wrote their first songs together, explains why he set out to be the weak link in the band, and why the only place he would ever talk to Bob Dylan is side stage at an arcade fire show. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin's conversation
1: with Wynn Butler.
2: What's happening, man? Hello, hello. Where are you? Uh, I'm in New
1: Orleans. Oh, nice. How long have you lived there?
2: Uh, five years or something. How's it been? I love it. It's funny, like when COVID started, I started watching like New Orleans films because I like miss New Orleans. <laughs> I miss New Orleans so much. It's like, even though I live here, I'm like, like it's, uh, it's amazing how uh, much of the city is just in the people.
1: Yeah. How did you choose to, um, to move there?
2: So, Regine, my wife who's in the band, um, my partner is, uh, her family's from Haiti, and she grew up in Montreal. So, she's sort of uh, Francophone Haitian. And when we were working on the suburbs, we did a road trip from Houston to New Orleans. And we sort of got to, we kind of got to near Lafayette, like the kind of like Creole, Zydeco country. And we went to these like clubs, these little Zydeco clubs, and it's like all black kids singing in French. And she understood everything from the Haitian side and the Quebec side and was just like, like this weird family tree sort of thing. And I grew up in Houston. So it's sort of like, I don't know, we both feel really at home here for it's like just feels like a our natural place.
1: Is the Haitian connection stronger even than in Montreal?
2: There's a lot more Haitians in Montreal. Like, there's more of a community and and culture. But the kind of spiritual, like the old, like you kind of have all this 1800s Haitian culture here. That's, that's like kind of like really deep. More the spiritual, spiritual piece of it is really strong here.
1: Beautiful. What's your connection to spirituality, or do you have any, or have you ever had any?
2: I kind of like my parents. My mom's my mom's family. So my my grandfather was Alvino Ray, who was a big band leader. He was actually one of two jazz guitarists in New York City, like in the in the 20s. He was like the, one of the first people that played jazz on a guitar. And my grandmother was a singer uh, in the King Sisters. And so my mom kind of grew up in this musical, like very musical family. They were on television, like musical overload. My mom's a harpist, jazz harpist. and And my dad's family is... It's from Maine, like they're like boat, like island people, like Harvard, academic, East Coast sort of people. And my my mom's family's Mormon, but I kind of call them like martini Mormons. Like they were like jazz Mormons, you know. I kind of grew up exposed, like going to Mormon church, but my dad never went. And my dad was like completely agnostic and like kind of like have fun guys sort of vibe. And then... As I kind of got older, I went away to boarding school, and I ended up I, like I studied my my degrees actually in religious studies because I I ended up sort of in philosophy, and then I the more I studied philosophy, the more I realized it all just kind of came back to the Bible anyway. I was like, well, I at least I should at least understand what this shit is talking about because like that's what all of Western culture is referencing. I don't know there there it, there there is I mean music is a spirit like that is what it is. And that's one of the things that brought me to New Orleans. It's like you really don't feel like a crazy person feeling that way because, like, it's self evident. But I, I think it's become my spirituality has become very churchless and and very kind of like, you know, more. I've, I've studied a lot of different stuff, but um, I probably know more about the Bible than than, than I should.
1: Do you think it's uh, informed your songwriting?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it enables you to be kind of crazy enough to think of it as a vocation, which even even if you're full of shit, at least it gives you a purpose.
1: <laughs> uh, let's talk about the difference between how a song would come about on the last album versus the first album. On the first album, might it be acoustic guitar, singing, playing, and finding a song? Would it start with lyrics? What What would be your typical process then... Most recently versus traditionally.
2: So the uh, the song "Everything Now" was I was actually I started I started DJing. We did a record with James Murphy and and I kind of started actually listening to music and clubs and like I remember hearing Dr. Dre in a club for the first time and I was like, "What the fuck? That's what that shit sounds like." I had no fucking idea. And you're like, "Oh shit!" Like I knew it was great, but I didn't know that that's what it sounded like. You know, so it's like when you hear what it sounds like and you start to get the production connection between the speaker is the last. It's like you're making some shit that hits the speaker and the speaker is actually what's doing the last bit of the word. And so I was actually working on a remix. There's a Francis Bass song called Coffee Cola. That's like this beautiful pygmy flute. It's like kind of a beatbox. It's this French uh, African singer. And as I was... Working on the remix, I started playing all these different chords over this little loop, and I just started singing a melody that was completely unrelated to the song, and it and it was just its own song. It took me a minute to even realize it was a song because I wasn't thinking. I didn't. I never hadn't really worked on sample-based music before, and it was like felt like a like a tool. I don't know the way that playing the guitar felt for me like when I was 15. It felt like that. It was like it was like oh wait, this is just a tool like any other tool, but it was like th- the melody and and, all, and the lyrical point of view and everything was like all there. But then even just to accept that it was a song took like six months. We, we ended up working with uh, Thomas uh, from Daft Punk and we did, we did the big session for that record in his studio in Paris, which is like the most amazing studio I've ever been in. It's amazing. And we actually got Francis Bebe's Son who plays the same instrument to come to the studio to play with us. And so we didn't actually end up using the sample. We, act, we And so we're like kind of like thinking about it very cerebrally and just like, oh, like, I don't know. I feel like there's this very PC, like, is this appropriative to use an African? Like, I don't, it's like this NPR think or some shit. <laughs> and then Patrick Bebe walks in the room with his flute and we play in the song and he's like almost like weeping and just like starts playing the song with us. And, and I was like, no, this is fucking what's up, you know, and, and like, just, I don't know. So that was like a really beautiful, really long process where it took almost like a year to even realize it was a song or something.
1: Amazing. Was the last album, the first album that that experience happened?
2: Totally. I mean, that was, the, that was the first time I would have ever been, I mean, since I was much younger, where I would have even really been, um, I don't know, even the idea of remixing something or or like kind of changing the context of something as a thing that I would have spent time on, I I wouldn't have been practicing that. That's, I I feel like I'm just constantly trying to feel like an amateur. It's like, you just like, I don't know what it is. Like the first time I heard Nirvana, my takeaway was like, I don't need to play a guitar solo. Like I, like my, my lesson was like, fuck a guitar solo. Not that guitar solos aren't great, but I'm just like, there's, it was more just like wanting to feel like, Like, I never really learned to play the guitar. I've never really gotten any better at any instrument. Like, I've almost, like, studiously maintained my amateurness so I can, like, pick something up being like, how does this work? And so that becomes sort of part of the process. And I just, everyone in my band is smarter than me and better at every instrument. Like, I I wanted to be in a band with, where I was the weak link musically or something. I don't know. Like like I like the people that I when I met Regine, I was like, Oh, you're smarter than me about everything. So like you just want to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Did you guys
1: start in a relationship or did you start in the band and be come together? How what was the timing of it?
2: It was the same. I went to Sarah Lawrence College, which is like super like post-art school, like outside of New York City. It was like 70-30 female to male. Jordan Peele was actually in my class and I got there and I was just like, I just spent all my time making four track recordings and like not going to class. And I was just like, this is stupid. So I, I basically dropped out and and started a band with my high school friend and then sort of ended up moving to Montreal. Um, I actually never even thought about Canada. <laughs> I wasn't like, I'm going to move to Canada one day or like it wasn't really... I didn't know shit about Montreal. I didn't even really know that it was French. Really, like, really, like, I knew, but I didn't like know.
1: No, because you're American, so of course, how would you know? We don't learn. We don't learn that.
2: <laughs> I, I grew up in Texas. I I took Texas history. Like, I can tell you about the fucking Battle of San Jacinto, but like, I don't know anything about European history. Like, you know. So yeah. So I I I was just like this idiot American, in like moving to Canada in the winter. Just like fuck, it's fucking cold here. Like, what's going on? And I would just, I would, I would go to the uh, music, to McGill, to the music school, and just hang out outside the drummer rooms, trying to find a drummer. Just listen to people practice drums for like hours. And I was in the cafeteria, and Regine was actually studying jazz at at McGill. She's like, "Who the fuck is this six foot five guy in a cowboy hat?" Like he definitely doesn't go to school here, and i I saw her and I went up to her, and I was describing to her like the kind of music I wanted to make and and she I think she was suspicious of like you know she was like, ah, oh. I mean, I said all the things that she would have been in I probably said like like it would have been like Neil young, the pixies, classical music, fucking you know radiohead, like it would have been like a weird hodgepodge of whatever I was into." she was like, well, I might know someone who plays drums. She gave me her number and uh, she never called me back or anything. And then I happened to be at an art opening at the art school and she was singing like like she, she had like a jazz trio that she was singing for like a vernissage, like for an art opening. And I saw her singing. And I was like, I went up to her afterwards. And I was like, we have to play music together. Like, I'm going to call you again. And she came over to my apartment and I played her a bunch of songs and she was like, oh, shit, this guy is not full of shit. Like, you know, I, I, I don't even remember what I played her, but we ended up writing a couple songs like that night. And it was pretty much like that was it. You know, we were kind of, I mean, it took a long time to put it all together. But from there, it was just like we were just sort of in it, you know, and now it's 2020. <laughs> and you have a kid. We have a kid and it's a global pandemic.
1: <laughs> and you moved, moved back to the States. Good old oh, man, USA. if he told
2: me I would move back to the south, I was like, "Get me the fuck out of here! I'm going as far as I can. Like, I'm going to fucking Montreal. Like, fuck, fuck Texas." But and now, so ironically, we're planning on going back to Texas to make the next record um, during the election. So that'll be fun.
0: We'll be back after a quick break.
3: Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the Nasdaq, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at marketmessage2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is marketmessage2024.com. That's marketmessage2024.com. 2024.com. dot
4: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over six million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand. Tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings,
0: Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer and the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true, untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed the Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer songwriters, Wounded Souls, Wayward Upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest.
1: We're back with Rick Rubin and Wynn Butler. Who were the other big uh, inspirations for you?
2: Actually, I found a, I found recently a flyer that we put up in Montreal. when We were looking for musicians. We were kind of looking for, um, we had the band, but we were looking for orchestral musicians. We were looking for like, I don't know, like a violinist or a, or someone who played Woodwinds, or we just wanted some other color in the band. And it was like, we listed our, it was like this funny flyer that Regina and I made. And I'm trying to remember what was on there, but it was like the Pixies, Debussy, Neil Young, Motown, and Dylan. That, that, like, th- those, that was, was on the list, like looking for orchestral musicians with like those influences, you know? And I'm, I'm like, it's pretty, str- like a New Order. And New Order, that was the other band. And I, when I look at our shit, I'm like, pretty on point. Like that's pretty much, that's sort of like the, it's a big, it's actually a really big sandbox to play in with, like if you stretch the edges of those. And then the other piece is really like Caribbean music and and Haitian music and, and like, and that sort of pull of Regine's background. And then in there, it's like, it's almost too much. I'm just like, oh, too much uh, real estate in here.
1: What would be the uh, electronic music that has come in since that gets added?
2: I mean, I would say that, you know, for me, like Radiohead and Bjork, Bjork is like, to me, like Bowie incarnate, like, you know, talk about not giving a fuck and just being like sticking to your guns and and shit. Like, I, I feel like Bjork slaughters, you know, she's so fucking tough and hardcore. I mean, I guess like. Kid A and Homogenic and like those records would have been those would have been deep in there I mean I feel like Kraftwerk is probably the most there is no modern music without Kraftwerk that's like the if you triangulate all EDM and hip hop and every like Kraftwerk's the fucking and who would think this weird German minimalist electronic group is like at? but they're at the crossroad of all of it you know if they got like a tenth of a penny on all that shit they're like they should you know it should be buildings in Berlin with the Kraftwerk logo on them. But
1: and the fact that it's as funky as it is, considering how coldly programmed it is. It's really it makes remarkable. no fucking
2: sense. I don't I still don't quite understand it. But I mean it's like the funkiness is in the space because it's like I actually realized that with Neil, some of Neil's shit, like the swing, even he always has the same beat, but if it's it's more of a soul, it's actually a slowed down it's like you're playing soul music, but really stoned. Like it's actually, it, there is actually like a kind of funky swing to the shit that he does. It's not just a straight thing. There's a little bit of a lilt to it. Like the the thing in New Orleans, which is so amazing is that all the, there's all the second line music, which is like people, like normally today, if it wasn't COVID, I would hear, there'd be a band in the street and people just go through the neighborhood and drink and, and you follow the band around and you either play kick drum snare or you play you play kick drum with a with a with a hi-hat cymbal with a screwdriver that's like one instrument and then or you play the snare or you play and so if you if you're a kit drummer from New Orleans you started monophonically just playing the kick or just playing the snare and so the do, and but everything's so spread out physically that in order to play in the pocket the the pocket is really slow and behind everything's really behind because of the, the physical distance, there's latency between the tuba and the kick drum and whatever. So the pocket is like this, like super behind, like you're like, how the fuck could this possibly groove? And it like, it's the exact point where it grooves. And then if you learn to play the kit after, you're coming from a monophonic kick drum and then you're putting it together. And that's why all those New Orleans, like all the LA studio dudes, like those New Orleans dudes are just like, because they play the fucking kick drum for like, Five years before they learned how to play the kit and then you put it together and so you're thinking about it as these different instruments as opposed to one instrument and like Amazing. and then you hear people some of these old dudes play at the preservation hall and i'm like watching this dude he's like 90 years old loading out his own kit at the end of the night and i'm watching him play i'm like who the fuck is that guy and it's like oh he played on every ray charles record like <laughs> like he just like The fucking most like I'm almost like crying just watching him play this traditional song. And it's like, oh, that's why. Like, that's that's what's up.
1: Isn't it remarkable that you can hear you don't have to know any backstory and you hear it and you know, oh, this is different than everything else. And it's
2: something I've heard heard that music a million times. But I'm like, but that dude, who the fuck is that dude? It's like, oh, he's one of the best drummers. In the world, who ever lived that no one's ever heard of? Who just, yeah. you know,
1: I can remember. I was listening to a, a station of. Um, I, I know very little about classical music. I like classical music and I listen to it a lot, but I know very little about it. And I was listening, and, and a, piece, a piece came on that just felt better—not written better, not even necessarily performed better—but there was something about it, it's like, oh. This is different than everything that's played all day. And then I find out who does the arrangement. And it turns out to be this guy, Klaus Augerman. And I ask some friends of mine who know about this stuff. He's like, oh, of course, Klaus Augerman. <laughs> of course. Like, of course. He's the master. He's the guy who taught everybody. So it's like, you can hear it. It's um it's innate in, in the in the DNA of it, that um, that energy.
2: Yeah but most of us get, just feel it so it's like you feel sad and you don't know why or you like you just feel like it just it just gets it out of you regine regine is like i mean she grew up none of her family is musical but she she's just a savant who like taught herself to play mozart when she was 5 in the basement on a weird or- like she's just like one of these can play any in- instrument she she started playing drums like two weeks before we started recording Funeral and she plays drums on half that record. Like she'd never played a drum kit. And she's like, I can play a drum kit. Give me the drums. Um, But she's studied composition. She was at McGill, studied classical music. But she has this like kind of, she'll hear pieces and it's like the the performance of the orchestra and she's like, fuck. It's like nails on a chalkboard because she knows like all the minutia of like the feeling. It's not just the notes on a page. It's like, it's like the conducting and how it's played and like all that shit is like where the soul of it is. But I'm just sort of like Fantasia cool. <laughs> like, I'm just like, <laughs> I really like Fantasia, you know, like, like
1: any, any shows that you can remember throughout your life that really uh, impressed or inspired you
2: live. I didn't really go to any show. I, it, when I was a kid, I was in the suburbs of Houston. If you can't drive, you can't do shit in Houston. Like, like, until you can drive, it's like you're a prisoner. And shows would come through town and I would like read them out in the paper. I'm like, man, I wish I could figure out how to get to that. And I just, I couldn't figure it out. And then I went to boarding school and that was like, not shows. You know, it was like, I played in a cover band and there were bands on campus and shit, but it wasn't like I was going to shows. So for me, like when I moved to Montreal, that was really my first like real punk rock, music scene, and there's a band in Montreal called Wolfbrid, and we played with them the first time they ever played. It was their first show. They just moved from Vancouver, and they were on the bill, and I was in the bathroom, and I was just, like, hearing it through the wall, and I was like, oh, what the fuck is that? And that was, like, the first band I heard there where I was like, we got to get our shit together. And so, like, there was a band called The Unicorns. There was a band called The Hidden Cameras. That's, like, a queer... Like fifteen-piece queer kind of folk band, and they would only play in porn theaters, and it was like kind of sounded like almost like Christian religious music, but like all about golden showers and like, man, I'll put I'll put that band up against ninety percent of the shit I've seen on planet. Earth. Like you just you're like you're assaulted by how mediocre your shit is. Like because they were just like ah just like going so fucking hard. There was a lot of like really people really doing it. And being on the ground, I don't know, I feel like some of that's lost. I don't even know how you would ever do anything if you're not constantly ashamed at how whack your shit is.
1: You just get you feed off the energy of how good other people are.
2: You got to. I mean, you I mean you gotta like i I've, I've met so many of my heroes in my life and I've never met Bob Dylan. But I was like, I would never wanna meet Bob Dylan, ever unless he was side stage of our show. And I'd be like, nice to meet you, Mr. Dylan," But like, I have no fucking interest in like, just cold meeting Bob Dylan. Like, I don't wanna be like, oh, I play in a band. Like, like I'm good, you know? Like, on on Neon Bible, on our second record, uh, I was obsessed. Do you ever get to meet Bob Johnson before he passed? He was yeah. the, the producer uh, who did what, all the Dylan shit, Johnny Cash, Live at Folsom, okay. Willie Nelson. Leonard Cohen, to me Bob Johnson like if you look at his discography that's like no one fucks with Bob Johnson. Like to me I'm like that's the holy grail. It's incredible. And so he came out to Montreal we were working on the record and he was like Willie Nelson but who didn't take the drugs as well. He was out of his fucking mind like completely out of it. But we were working on a song called My Body's a Cage and he sort of like sits up and he's like my body's a cage and like he'd like loved the song my body's a cage and like was really just like yes this that is a holy thing that you're working on and that and then he was just sort of out of it you know but he was like i'm like, i'm shocked that
1: the song that gets mentioned is that song because at the end of this interview i was gonna say my favorite song of yours is my body is a cage and would it be okay for us to listen to it and talk about it because i love that song um do you mind if we listen to it of course yeah let's do it if you would have written that song sooner, there is no question in my mind that Johnny Cash would have sung that song and it would have been mind-blowing.
2: Yeah. There's definitely some room sound on that motherfucker. Yeah. Tell me the story of the song. It's interesting. It's like I have sort of transported. I haven't really listened to it in a while, but um, I don't really know Brandon Flowers from The Killers, but he's Mormon. We both play in these giant bands. We've like met each other at airports a couple times, and I reached out to him recently just to be like, keep going, man, I really appreciate your, your record and keep, keep doing it. And he was like, he was like, I remember meeting you on funeral and you had this little keyboard and I remember thinking, man, this guy's writing music on tour. I should really work harder. And like, I had this little Casio, Casio keyboard on the funeral tour that had a, a sampler and the whole tour, I brought it with me and I would, we were in a, we were in a sprinter van I would sit in the back headphones for like nine hours driving across Texas like to the next gig and I would play this fucking thing for two years and that's the only song I wrote in that entire two year period that that was the only one and I remember singing it in the shower of like some fucking Motel 6 somewhere in the desert and then the car broke down somewhere in Arizona and I was sitting on the curb with the headphones on I just figured out how it went and i was like "Regine, i wrote one like i got i have i have this you know in just sitting like just sweating like it's like evening i'm sitting on this weird curb it's like literally the smallest sound i was playing the littlest fucking thing this little keyboard and it sounded like what we just heard in my head but it was like literally the smallest thing and then like maybe a year and a half later we cut it and So like we cut it, the backing band when Bob Johnson was there in in this church we bought outside of Montreal, like an hour outside of Montreal. And then we cut it live on this, I found it, I found this little church. It actually wasn't the church we owned. It was another church that had a pipe organ in it, but it wasn't the right pipe organ sound. And I found it's like one of the giant, this giant cathedral in Montreal that like you play and there's like an eight second delay, like giant fucking thing. I just, I want to something that feels like the way it sounds when you walk into a church and you really hear it. And we had this engineer who was this like, really like indie rock kind of cold dude. And I remember finishing it and it, the echo for like 10 seconds afterwards. And I looked at him and he was, cry, he was like crying. Like just from the physical, it was so fucking loud in the room, like the bass and everything. It was like the loudest sound I've ever heard.
1: Did you sing it and play it live?
2: No, it's the organ. I, I I sang it live in that other room, and then we overdubbed the organ and And there's French horn that dun, 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 dun. like there's this kind of um that was recorded in the same church, like from like a hundred feet away, like just horns echoing in this gi- giant cathedral.
1: What about the rhythm track?
2: The rhythm track is um, I think it's Regine playing the drums. like the whole first half of the track is just organ and, and drums and just Regine playing doom, 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 like kind of, like I remember that her reference point was Prince. Maybe I'm just like my mother. Doom, 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 doom. Like there's that sort of rhythm underlying it. And then it just sort of opens up and everything's on 11 it's just like. Bah. I remember kind of taking some shit on that record for it being so bombastic, it's like so like how pretentious to make something bombastic and I was like, motherfucker like the shit's not bombastic enough like like it's it's fine
1: i would have never i would have never noticed the when doves cry reference on the drums but when you say it, it's like oh yeah that makes sense
2: dun, dun, dun. but but not obviously not the same production but
1: yeah but it's, it's interesting how a reference point even a super well-known reference point when you change the context of it, it turns into completely new yeah. music Any memories about the lyrics at all?
2: When I hear myself sing on those, really the first two records, I was ill. I was like, I had a chronic sinus, I had chronic sinus infections and I, I would basically be sick for four months at a time. My voice was just fucking shredded, you know, like, and I would just scream every note of every song from beginning to end every night. But I was really like not well. And even at the end of funeral, I was still sick. We launched Neon Bible and we were in Sweden or something. We went to play the show and it's just like, like nothing, no sound. Like my voice, like I've never had that before. We had to cancel the whole tour. Like I, I could, like not a whisper of sound came out of my voice. And so I feel like my body as a cage was like, just like, you're just being suffocated by your life. It was just like, I had like, like my body wasn't my own and i'm doing what i've always dreamed of doing on planet earth and it's fucking hell but like but it's also my wildest dream you know but it wasn't like it's not later easy later it got fun it got once you know once you have money and you're staying in nice hotels and it's like a little bit cushier but like it, there was no nuance to what we were doing we were like it it was war like every show is like we're at war with the audience it wasn't like a kumbaya sort of shit it was like we're trying to fucking kill like you're not gonna be like oh what was that band like we were like we were coming to kill you every night you know like i don't care if there's three people like we're we're at 11 you know and which is it's great when you're when you're young and i didn't even drink or anything then so i can't even imagine how i would have done it if i was like high or some shit
1: How did you end up solving the infection issue?
2: I got a uh, sinus surgery and they kind of opened. I had like one side that wasn't drained. They opened it up. And then afterwards, my dad was like, oh, yeah, I had that too. And so did your brother. I was like, fuck, dad. Like, I've been sick for like three years. Like, you could have hit me that it was like a completely like genetic. It's like, yeah, I had that surgery a lot. I was like, have you noticed that I've been ill for forever?
0: (laughs) We'll be back with Wynn Butler and Rick Rubin.
3: Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the Nasdaq, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now, Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. He put everything you need to know in a new presentation specifically designed for people off Wall Street. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at NewStockTrend.com right now.
4: So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
0: Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer and the new scripted audible original The Boar's Nest sue brewer and the birth of outlaw country music discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today despite never picking up an instrument herself lovingly dubbed the boar's nest sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters Wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. Here's the rest of Rick Rubin's conversation with Wynn Butler.
1: Are you, are you um, writing and working towards whatever the next project is going to be?
2: Yeah, we were, we, it depends on the record, but at least a year or more pretty much full time before we start even demoing stuff. We'd been writing for a year and we're doing our first session towards the record when when kind of covid came down and so like it was it felt like sort of like being on the on the roller coaster and it goes up and like you you're going into it and it's like exactly then once your your body's already going like there was there's no stopping it so i've just been writing like i can't remember a time where i've written more just like feels like being 18 just like sitting in a piano for 5 days in a row and working on a melody for a verse and shit like that. It's pretty it's been pretty amazing actually. Really beautiful time.
1: Great. Do you do you feel like had had the situation been different you would already be in recording mode based on the year, year previous of writing?
2: We would have been kind of getting towards wrapping up, I think.
1: Of finishing an album.
2: Yeah. So instead, we just wrote two or three.
1: Tell me about how the last album was different than all that came before them for you.
2: I mean, it sort of feels like the way we do it, we're kind of a new band every single time. It's like we, we take so much time in between that it's like almost like we've forgotten to play our instruments. It's like we're remembering how to be a band. And we, we kind of end up building, we really build a studio pretty much every record. And the last record, we had just moved to New Orleans, and I spent a lot of time in Haiti and Jamaica, and we used to our, we used to have a studio in a church, and then over the years, like the space has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and so our our new studio is like maybe three hundred square feet, but with it's like an old shotgun of like a of an old New Orleans house, like eighteen hundreds house, and it's like sort of like a black arc, like Jamaican like the console in the corner we had like 15 musicians everyone's like sweating their ass off and touching each other and sort of like really physically close and just everything's within it's like you're on a boat so every all the gear is here and the eqs and everything's just like immediate so that was the first time that was the first record we made in that space that was really just like the smallest possible space that
1: and that was chosen on purpose to 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 get that feeling.
2: It's just sort of what I was gravitating towards, just like immediacy and like um, I remember visiting, like on the first tour we went, we were, went to the Motown studio in Detroit. That's like in the basement, and just like how small that space is, and they have those uh, like on the walls, like we're normally like all modern studios have like deadening foam and shit everywhere, and I'm always just like get me the fuck out of here. I hate this space so much. Like, I'm just like, how is the spirit supposed to get into a room where all the windows are hermetically sealed? But the Motown studio had these boards, lacquer boards, that were meant to reflect the sound to make it more exciting. So it'd bounce off and hit the piano player and hit the drummer. So it would be more more feedback and more slapback and brighter. So the fucking musicians play better. Everything is designed now to be separate like the most separation possible and i always responded more to like i wanted to hit me so that i sing better or I sing differently or i play better
1: might might have something to do with the volume because i think uh, as bands have gotten louder and louder with you know bigger amps and louder stuff it's harder to control that sound in a space whereas in the motown days people played pretty quietly even on james brown records if you listen it's like totally. delicate the drummer's touch.
2: barely barely playing yeah totally.
1: so it's a different it's a different animal and with the, are the songs on the earlier records it's clear how the songs would be written in advance and then turn into what we're familiar with on the records does it work the
2: same way in the more modern uh style of production we've we always have recorded to tape pretty much in the last six months is the first time where i like working on a computer, I'm like, oh, this shit actually sounds just as good to my ear. Like, like it's kind of hit a point where it's not really for sonics anymore. Tape is more for methodology. We're not. We've jammed We've certainly jammed a lot, a lot over the years. I don't know how many things we've written that way. Like, probably only a couple things. But but you you'll end up kind of more for arrangements, like coming up with different ideas and stuff for arrangements. But
1: so from the f- what would a what would a song look like when you first bring it into the band so the song exists the band has not played it before now we're going into the studio what does that process look like
2: it's been different every time you know it depends on the era you know like um as i've as we've kind of ended up having a studio in our house it's really hard not to end up just demoing something to the point where it basically sounds like a record and then it's just like this like kind of torturous process of trying to figure out how it works as a band thing or what it what it is from my perspective like the the thing i'm most interested in is the song itself and you really have no you don't have much say in whether or not you get a song except for the more time you put in the better your odds are that you'll be hanging around when some shit shows up i mean just you Like, if you do it more, you're more likely to be there. Like, you can't schedule it. Like, the the more apart we are and coming back together, it's like, well, okay, well, this month, that's when we're going to get the shit. And it doesn't really work that way because it, like, music shows up whenever the fuck it wants. It doesn't give a shit about your life. It's like, my dad's family's from Maine, but actually, I have, my grandmother's from Hawaii, and I've spent time in Hawaii. And when you're in the ocean in Hawaii, the Pacific doesn't give a shit if you're alive or dead it doesn't care at all you're just like the the energy i get from that ocean is like your existence is like inconsequential to me and i feel like music is the comes from the same spirit as that where it like like it doesn't give a shit about you but if you're there and you want to if you want to participate in what it's doing then you're welcome to participate but it doesn't really if you're alive or dead, it's going to find someone else. If you got other shit going on, it'll be like, okay, see you later. I got, someone just got born. I got to go, You got to go check them out see what, see what, what they're thinking about, you know?
1: Amazing. Tell me about you've, so now you're at a point where you might demo up music on the computer and then you figure out how to turn it into the band or tell me, just tell me the What's the process?
2: Shit, man, it just gets complicated cuz everyone's so spread out now. My brother lives in Brooklyn, who's in the band. A lot of band members are in Montreal and then our drummer's in Australia actually, which is like extremely inconvenient. That seemed like a reasonable thing even like six it was like, "Oh, sure, we all live in different points of the globe." And then this shit happens and it just seems absurd. You're like, "What the, like what are we what were we thinking in the last 10 years?" But, you know, I mean, it's like Ideally, like I would say back in the day when we were, when we were rehear, like we had a loft we lived in, our drums were in the living room, we'd have band practice. And so the odds that people are around when the shit happens is higher because everyone's hanging out. So it's like, even if you don't play something, if you're there when it's happening, it's still, you still feel like you don't need to play on it. You can just, you can just be there and, and kind of like be part of the process. So it's harder to orchestrate that happening, I think, with a band. But on the flip side, the band is so fucking great at their instruments. Like everyone's so so much more technically proficient, and and so such a tight, amazing. I don't know. I mean, I don't. I'm not trying to like toot our horn, but we're like not a shitty live band, and 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 we've when we play like we're not fucking around like we're, we're we're like if the clash is watching us play we're not going to be embarrassed like we're we're like we're like coming we're, we're going for the throat when we play so it's like over 15 years of doing that it's like we're so the the range of what we can express is so much better so this time around it's like we've been in lockdown have a studio have every keyboard and drum machine and piano and everything I could ever want and fucking time. So it's like, and, and the one piece that's been missing is the time. And now the time is like it, the time is there. So it's like, in a way, it feels like a more extreme version of what we would have done anyway, but it's, uh, I don't know if it's been, it's been cool just to really like stay with it and just like, I don't know. There's like no magic, no magic thing that's going to come and write the song for you. It's just like, it's just you. So it's like, figure it out. Yeah. Are you ever surprised
1: by what comes back
2: as opposed to what you're expecting or what you're looking for? I mean, that's, that is sort of, that is the joy of a band is when it's, it's, it's better than what you thought it was, you know, and it's different and it's like kind of fleshed out. Absolutely. I mean, that's mostly. That is what it is, you know. Um, and it's in its best form. We were so hardcore about never editing everything. Like back in, like the first three, four records, we wouldn't touch a fucking thing. Like we wouldn't move one piece of drums, and it was just like, no, that's what it is. Like if we couldn't do it, that's what it is. And so, I feel like the the computer makes it. It, when I hear most modern music, it feels like I'm listening to editing. Like, like it, it's essentially become an art form of editing, which is cool. It is really cool, but it's like it feels like digital, digital quilting or something like that.
1: Doesn't feel like a musical performance. It feels like an editing performance.
2: Like an amazing editing. It's it's the same thing as a big budget film or something. When it's just like it, it's like a magic trick of editing. I was actually sort of realizing this the other day. Um, like the kind of heyday of like 50s and 60s and like some of the music that was really recorded in the room, like is VR. It's VR before VR. And if if you can hear a room, if you close your eyes, you hear the piano player, you hear the drummer, you can hear the room. And so every time you hear that shit, you're in like Richie Valens playing, like that's why these mediocre recordings from the 50s of like La Bamba and shit, you hear it and you're like, Motherfuck, because it's like it's a photograph of a thing. So for me, that's still the shit that is the great song and the best arrangement and has that. To me, that's the shit that lives forever, because it's like it's like it actually is a room.
1: I have have a slightly different take on it. Similar, but different. Um, My feeling is if you hear the room that they're in, it doesn't take into account the room you're in, the listener. Yeah. And I I want the music to come out of the speakers as if the band was in the room that I'm in and experience it as if they're here playing for me in my space. Because otherwise it's two rooms. It's their room plus my room and it's confusing to me. No, I <laughs> So that's that's how I, I see feel it.
2: you I mean, what you're describing as like is uh I mean, obviously if you hear fucking dancing queen, that's in the room you're in. Like, that's in your room. It's not their room. Like, And that's just like, that's that seven, just immaculate guru level shit as well. But there's still like, for me, like when I hear like um, Stand By Me or some shit like that, that's the fucking, or like Louis Armstrong or whatever. Like, that's the, to me, that's That's just like, what the fuck are you going to say about, like that shit will live for a thousand years. I mean, now too, it's like, we're mixing for this shit. We're mixing for iPhone and like club speakers and like it's like it's enough to make you insane
1: how how aware are you of the perception of the work you make after it comes out are you aware at all or or just you make it and then you move on
2: definitely aware i mean i've always most of the bands that i liked when i was a kid had broken up 20 years before i was listening to them like i wasn't like in high school like radiohead and bjork were like that was that was it for me like in terms of the contemporary this came out this week i bought it this week but most of the shit i listened to the bands had broken up 20 years before and so i always had the perspective of like how do you even know if any of it's any good until 20 years after it comes out like how i've just like read these enemy reviews of like the clash and whatever and what they're talking it's absurd you read it and you're like this is absurd you know like how could anyone take any of this shit seriously and so I was, I was always coming up from that perspective where it's like, I'm almost like distrustful of a good review where it's like, it's like, oh shit, our shit must not be that good. is if, if, if <laughs> a really know.
1: funny, the, Rolling Stone put out a collection of everything written about Neil Young in Rolling Stone as a book. Yeah. And you read the review of each album and every review is terrible. Worst, you know, Neil's worst, he's lost it doesn't know what he's doing lost and then you get to the and then you get to the decade's finest albums and he's always in the those same albums are always in their top 10 of the best albums of the decade every
2: consistently every single time yeah neil neil doesn't give a fuck if like you don't drop out of crosby stills and nash if you give a fuck like he had a really good thing going like just imagine the balls it takes Buffalo Springfield too. Buffalo Springfield. Like, I'm in two of the biggest bands in the world. Like, I'm just gonna go in my basement and like fucking play some shit. And like, yeah, Neil is like like that's that's the North Star. I feel like for people who do what I do, you're just like that's a cold blooded motherfucker. He doesn't give a shit.
1: What's your favorite Neil album?
2: I mean, I love um After the Gold Rush is probably the one that I've just lived with the most. Like it just like
1: it's my favorite that's as well. my
2: favorite but i it's mean harvest is like i mean what the fuck are you going to say about harvest like in terms of the like the live needle and the damage done like a live recording and then the orchestral stuff like that like the magic trick of that is 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 amazing definitely after the gold rush the one that that's my like i'm going to that one
1: it's it's a pretty magical it's a pretty magical one
2: that's that's a record i would love to make and it would be really hard like man
1: Have you seen that? I imagine you've seen the BBC, Neil Young, from right around that time.
2: I've seen a a lot of that shit, but I'm trying to remember which...
1: There's a particular film of him playing, and he's playing, like, um, Old Man and uh, Man Needs a Maid, and he's playing them for an audience who's never heard them before, and the records are not out yet. Yeah. And it's just the heaviest, most incredible thing you've ever seen. Yeah,
2: so, I mean... Old man's one of the because we did, we did the um, his charity thing with him a couple years and hearing him sing that as an old person and think like he wrote that at 22 for when he was old and it sounds more relevant like now than it did then that's I mean that's that's the trick.
1: Going into the next album, do you have a clear vision of what the album sounds like, or do you have a clear vision of the material?
2: I mean, I know what the songs sound like. I don't know. What do you, what do you, what would you want our record to sound like?
1: I want to be surprised. And, uh, it's always good to be surprised. I like to be surprised.
2: Yeah. I think you'll be surprised.
1: And I want it to be really good. You know, I, I care less about the, um, the trappings of it and more about it being really good at whatever it is that it is. So I care less about what it is and more
2: about how good of a version of whatever the thing that you decided to be is. I mean, that's the tough, it's like, there's not, it's hard to, you look at role models and people have done it in the past. And it's like, it's, it, you it's, it's interesting. It's like, you start to like, we, we were fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with Bowie and, and, and he sings on a record and got to like, really, you know, like I've got to like, actually pick his brain. And when he died, It really felt like a a planet died or something like there's like it it was like I did not expect like it kind of took me by surprise. I knew it wasn't totally well, but then like someone like that, it was just like it's not about like, oh, this record is perfect and all these perfect records. It's just like about the the total commitment, like total and complete commitment to like to art. Uh, That's what I think about. It's just like not like not letting what's hard about it, like, keep you from the art art of it, you know? But I don't know, I, I feel so lucky just to have a fucking band that's a great band, really good people that I love, and and just like, being able to fucking, I don't know, I feel, I feel like I took so much more for granted before this whole global pandemic. I'm just like, I feel so like, so much gratitude. But also just like, Fuck, if I don't get into a studio ASAP, there's going to be a problem. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you're, look at, you're lo- looking forward to the process. I
2: can't wait. Like, I just want to fucking sing and feel like an artist and just like feel uninhibited and just like feel it. I just, it just feels like there's so much logistics. Like, the world, it's like there's, there's, uh, like things that used to be you would kind of take for granted are suddenly really complicated. And, uh, I can't wait to just be in a room, making noises, and um, I feel really like a teenager in that regard, where I'm just like, it still feels like really exciting to me. And I don't know, not sucking is is a motherfucker, and I don't know, I it's like, <laughs> like I'll let you know when I figure it out.
1: Great, maybe we uh, maybe we'll speak again when you're done, and we listen to it
2: together and talk about it. Be fine. Yeah, I'll I'll send you some shit. You tell me what's good. Okay, happy yeah. to. Cool, man. Yeah, thanks. That was, that was fun. Nice to, nice to talk about music.
0: Thanks to Wim Butler for breaking down his writing and recording process. We hope he's crammed into a tiny studio space with his band playing new music soon. You can hear all of our favorite Arcade Fire songs on our playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcasts. There you can find extended cuts of our new and old episodes. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and is executive produced by Mia Lobel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like Broken Record, please remember to share, rate, and review our show on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace.
3: Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the Nasdaq, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. He put everything you need to know in a new presentation specifically designed for people off Wall Street. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at newstocktrend.com right now. Again, the link to watch is NewStockTrend.com. That's NewStockTrend.com. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just... $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do broken record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans, it's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to Muzora.com, musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A dot com, to start a new musical journey today. With the Lucky Landslots, Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.